This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore the role of students and youth in global education governance. With me is Sebastian Berger, the Executive Director of the Global Student Forum. The Global Student Forum is the umbrella organization of the world's major representative student federations and the only independent, democratic, and representative student governance structure dedicated to promoting the rights and perspectives of student organizations and movements on the global level. I think on all levels of education governance and policy in most parts of the world, it is very clear that student involvement is a fundamental value that is shared by, by stakeholders, by university leadership, by governments on the institutional level, on the national level, but also, as you were saying, on the, on the regional level. If you look at uh, the European Union and the Bologna process, where students have a very prominent role in, in leading on the development of education in Europe, but also in other regions of the world. What is important to ensure legitimacy is that these people who are representing the voice of students in the spaces are actually elected and I think that's what the student movement has established in, in, in a way that only is comparable to the way that trade unions are organizing. We have this bottom-up multi-level democratic governance structures where students elect their representative on an institutional level, on a national level. Sebastian Berger has been an active member of the international student movement for years, holding various leadership positions on the local, national and international level. He previously held the office of vice president in the European Students' Union and was a founding member of the Global Student Forum Steering Committee. He's currently paused his master's degree to work full-time with the Global Student Forum. Sebastian Berger, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much for having me. So we met in Paris at the Transforming Education Pre-Summit, which was held at UNESCO's headquarters in late June. Can you just tell listeners exactly what this idea of Transforming Education Summit is? What is that summit and what is UNESCO doing with it? So the Transforming Education Summit is, is being convened at the initiative of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres as part of his common agenda report that serves more or less as, as his vision for international cooperation and, and effective multilateralism. In the summit itself, the organization lies within the hands of an interagency secretariat hosted by UNESCO and under the leadership of the Assistant Director General Office for Education. And uh, the, the objective of this summit and, and the initiative is to mobilize greater political ambition for actions to reverse the, the slide on SDG4, but also compensate for learning losses of COVID-19 in line with the Reimagine Education Initiative to accelerate progress on SDG4 and the 2030 Agenda in the little time that is left to achieve it. So, okay, so this is a high-level UNESCO managed event, let's say, connected to the General Secretary's office at the UN. And this event in Paris was the pre-summit. So when exactly is the summit itself? Uh, the actual summit will be taking place in New York uh, in September at the margins of the United Nations General Assembly, I, I think in an attempt to elevate education to the top of the political agenda and to maximize the public awareness and engagement. So the high-level segment will take place, uh, I think, on the 19th of September uh, in New York. Transforming Education Summit is obviously a high-level event taking place during the General Assembly as a side event or, you know, concurrent event. Obviously, it is going to be made up of many heads of state, many nation states, many member states. So that sort of begs the question, what exactly are you doing at this Transforming Education Summit, and in particular, this pre-summit that where we met in Paris in June? 
I was at the pre-summit in, in Paris in my capacity as director of the Global Student Forum. It's an extremely important opportunity for us uh, as a movement uh, since the early 90s um, of the past century. After the International Union of Students got dissolved, uh, learners did not have a democratic and independent global union to advocate for their interests um, towards the institutions of the international community and the education sector, um, specifically with UNESCO being at the, at the heart of the policy making there. So we are trying to develop um, pathways ways for advocacy for student unions to influence these important processes and the Transforming Education Initiative with the pre-summit and the actual summit taking place in New York on this year is an extremely important opportunity for us to lobby policymakers to be in contact with other allies um, in the education sector and bring the voice, the representative voice of students to the table. So you're bringing up some really interesting sort of issues here. I mean, I guess the first one is, to me, what's the history of students and youth being involved at these high-level events? Because UNESCO obviously has been working on education since its founding, but have youth always been involved? Have students always been involved? Definitely not always. I think that this the strong focus on, on youth participation is a relatively recent development within UNESCO, um, which we definitely applaud. So the, 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 there was also a very strong uh, youth focus at the TESP summit. What we would like to see is stronger engagement of student unions, of representatives, representative and democratic movements that represent the interests of, of learners. And our experience stemming from the revision process of the Global Education Cooperation Mechanism in 2021 was the following. We were lobbying heavily together with our civil society partners and some progressive member states to create a student seat in the SDG4 high-level steering committee and the Sherpa group, because in the previous architecture there had been a youth seat for an individual that was selected and appointed by UNESCO. But unfortunately, our lobby efforts and appeals to UNESCO, to, to its political leadership, were neglected and remained unsuccessful. And instead of allowing us as student unions and learners representatives to elect our own representative in this important committee, like it is the case for private enterprises, foundations, as well as civil society and the teacher trade unions, UNESCO moved forward with creating a mechanism called SDG for Youth Network that would serve as a legitimization for the top-down appointment of a youth representative into the high-level steering committee. And, and uh, we were directed to apply for membership in this network instead of being given the chance to, to have a student representative that is accountable to the constituency in this space. You know, why did UNESCO decide to go down this route of a top-down selection of a youth representative legitimized through this youth network rather than engaging with student unions? I personally think that the, the strong focus on youth in the United Nations is, is not more, uh, not a mere coincidence, but rather a result of, of long negotiations between state representatives on how to categorize uh, or, or limit the participation of young people. In that case, a categorization which purposely lacked representativeness and accountability, and a categorization which is probably based for some states on the intention of excluding student movements from participating in UN organs. As you know, democratic student unions have throughout history often been very critical voices and the force against national governments and uh, many of them I think are to this point not willing to give that group the opportunity to also take a stance and criticize them in international fora. In your work, in your experiences at the summit, but also, or the pre-summit, but also, of course, over the last few years, as, as you've been very involved in this sort of process of bringing student and youth voices into these high-level meetings and sort of this global arch architecture of education, have you found that there's sort of disagreement among youth themselves of, as to how this should look, how best this should look within the global architecture, rather than just, a, you know, 
some sort of contestation with the UNESCO powers that be? Like, is there any disagreement internally among students and youth? I, I would not necessarily say a disagreement. I, I do think that there is agreement that both groups need to be represented because both groups represent a completely different demographic with a very different way of organizing themselves and with very different inputs that they can bring to the table. And particularly one of the one of the positive takeaways for me personally from the pre-summit was uh, the, the youth consultation, not because it was so well organized from the SDG for Youth Network site, but because other grassroots youth representatives were strongly in favor of many progressive positions, among others, the need to include student representatives and student unions in education policy making as a tool to democratize education and making sure that it's not the people in power who pick people who sit on the decision-making tables, but rather young people in education themselves. It seems like such common sense, you know, in a way. I guess I'm going to ask a, maybe a slightly stupid question, but maybe then again, there are no stupid questions. What is the difference in your mind between students and youth? So the, the difference between students and youth, I think, is first of all a, a demographic one. Um, in times of, of lifelong learning and in times of economic distress where many students have to work to finance their education, um, not all students are young people. The same applies to young researchers, to PhD students. Many of them do not fall within the margin of the youth category. On the other side, when we talk about representation, once again, it's, it's a big difference of being elected to represent a group, a very specific group that has a democratic accountability framework, or just being being a member of a group. I'm also under 30, so in theory I would be a youth representative. Whether I have the mandate to speak on behalf of youth just because of that is a very different story. So I think it needs both. It needs these brilliant individuals that are being selected by UNESCO to come to these spaces and put their input on the table, but it also needs elected and representative, accountable um, spokespeople of education unions. So both has its legitimacy, but you cannot just focus on one and, and neglect the other. And so in a way, this would mean potentially having two seats at a minimum of youth and students on these STG committees. Very much so. Uh, as I said previously, I think that both groups bring uh, distinct uh, added value to the table. And we've been in conversations with UNESCO uh, recently and had a mighty positive reception to the idea that a second seat would be created at a later point. And for now, we hope that the High Level Steering Committee will decide to grant an observer status to an elected student uh, representative in the High Level Steering Committee and the Sherpa groups. Wow. I mean, that's fantastic sort of progress in a way to, to hear that students may actually have a seat or a space at the table, so to speak. Um, I guess, you know, another question that ends up that comes to mind is student union groups are, of course, locally organized, potentially nationally organized, and then perhaps in some regions like the EU, where you have participated quite extensively, there are regional bodies. So how can a global sort of body of students come together to elect, you know, in a representative way, someone to sit at that table with UNESCO? How does that actually work? I think on all levels of, of education governance and policy um, in most parts of the world, it is very clear that uh, student involvement is a, is a fundamental value that is shared by, by stakeholders, by university leadership, by governments on the institutional level, on the national level, but also, as you were saying, on the, on the regional level. If you look at uh, the European Union and the Bologna process, where students have a very prominent role in, in leading on the development of education in Europe, but also in other regions of the world, if you look at the African Union. What is important to ensure legitimacy is is that these people who are representing the voice of students in these spaces are actually elected. And I think that's what the student movement has um, established in, in, in a way that only 
is comparable to the way that trade unions are organized. And we have this bottom-up, multi-level democratic governance structures where students elect their representative on an institutional level, on a national level, and then through the regional federations on the regional level. There are regional student unions in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, through the Commonwealth Students Association, also in Asia. We are currently building uh, regional student unions or try to reactivate it in the Pacific region with our colleagues in New Zealand, uh, uh, Australia, and the Pacific Islands. And now we do that on the global level, through the Global Student Forum. And it has taken decades without students having a voice, create this structure. That's how it works. The regional and national unions elect their representatives into the steering committee of the Global Student Forum that holds the democratic legitimacy and takes the decisions on behalf of the international global student movement. It's quite amazing. So I want to actually dig into what the Global Student Forum is a bit more. So these representatives get elected at, at these multiple layers, and then they end up getting put into representatives into the global student form. So do these students then continue to be students themselves wherever they are located and then just participate virtually? Or, you know, how does it actually work like the global student form? as this global entity. So definitely the elected student leaders continue to be students, but as it is the case in other student movements on a national and a regional level, they often turn down their progress on studies for the sake of being activists and, and doing their political work, which unfortunately, since the student movement generally is underfunded, is often a very, <laughs> is not really an endeavor that that, that helps them in, in their economic situation. But they, they do take on their responsibilities as a part-time volunteering role. And, and at the moment, due to COVID, mostly the engagements were... Um, in, by digital means, but now that conferences are taking up again and meetings are taking up again, we hope that we have the, the, the chance and, and also find more funding to really create a movement bringing people together and allowing student representatives to be in the relevant advocacy spaces. So how many people or students are sort of represented by the Global Student Forum? Like how many different unions are involved? Like what's the size of this organization? So we started out with uh, around 180 national unions represented through the five regional federations. But since then grew to 202 national and regional unions from 122 countries and territories. I think what is important to point out is that we both encompass secondary level unions, so school student unions and tertiary level student unions. Um, and at the moment uh, we, we, we uh, represent approximately around 200 million learners. It's incredible. And it's just, it's amazing to think that it took decades, as you said, to sort of get to this point. I mean, you're working at the, is it a secretariat for the Global Student Forum in Brussels? You know, and so you've been involved with student unions in Austria, in the EU for a long time as well. Looking back on your own history, but also, you know, knowing the, the longer history of, of student union participation at the global level and, and building this architecture very slowly and over decades, are there particular reasons why you think this took so long? Or is it just sort of a... You know, is it just part of the process of actually doing this in a more democratic way that it just takes time to sort of build up these structures? It was a tremendous amount of work that has been done in the lead up to establishing the Global Student Forum in 2020 to find consensus on the political nature and the organizational governance of the initiative, ensuring bottom up democracy, but also ensuring that these different ways of working, these different organizational cultures can come together and work on, on certain issues that are relevant to them. And we found out quite quickly that the problems that students are facing 
are of course different regionally, but holistically speaking, if you take a look at the macro perspective, are quite similar. It's, it's high tuition fees, it's violence uh, in, in institutions, it is decline of democracy, it is environmental justice issues, it is things that cannot be solved within the thinking of regional and national boundaries. So I think that's the reason why we managed to establish this alongside another very fundamental issue that was, was there before. We had the chance that we had great allies and a political window of opportunity with COVID, I think, plus funding. So uh, uh, there were previous attempts, but without any funding to establish organizational structures, a secretariat, etc., it's really, really hard to put this together. And the student movement historically has very little funding um, because students do not have much money themselves to support their interest representation structure. Does it get problematic having sort of a high turnover of students, right? I mean, students are quite transitory. They are students for a particular number of years. They might take a year or two off to, to participate in these activities, but, you know, they are changing quite rapidly and quickly and only have like a short window of opportunity to be involved in some of these student unions in particular. So does that also impact, you know, or make it difficult to sort of build some of these lasting structures that are that are beyond any one student, let's say? Yes, very much so. I think you identified one of the most crucial flaws by default in, in our movement that we have a high turnover. People stay in universities, in schools for a very limited amount of time and then usually move on with their lives and, and have very little to do with the students' movement once they are alumni and gradu uh, graduates. Um, so what we need to do as a movement to grow stronger is creating mechanisms to preserve organizational knowledge and, and have effective handovers from one generation to another. And I think one thing that can, can guarantee is, is having professional secretariats that support elected student representatives in executing their political agenda and achieving, attaining their, their goals. So that's once again a question of funding, but I think that's where it's moving towards to, so to create structures that allow to combat the, the negative effects of the turnover we have in the students' movement. I wanted to ask a question about you just previously said something about COVID gave you this political opportunity. How did COVID enable the Global Student Forum to sort of have a political opportunity? What happened in particular? So I think there are two layers to this. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, uh, COVID impressively showed that we live in a highly globalized world and that issues that start somewhere very regionally can become issues of, of, of global concern. And I think uh, that, that is the same mechanism as for climate change and many other global crises. Um, and it gave us also the opportunity to convene students with very little funding. So there was no other opportunity to meet uh, than via Zoom, and that is relatively uh, cost-effective. While it's getting harder and harder to bring uh, a big amount of people onto Zoom calls now that we are more or less hopefully uh, on, on the way to recovery and ending this, this this pandemic, it was for us very easy to convene loads of meetings to create momentum for the movement and bring together people for the idea of, of, of starting the global student. It's such an interesting sort of story that the long history of the struggle for student movements and unions to sort of work together and build together these regional and global sort of networks and, and structures and this sort of the structuring that you're talking about, the actual process of, of doing it, but then having these political opportunities like COVID that allowed online meetings and sort of a new urgency that sort of gave new life in a sense to this organizing. And now to hear that the student unions have been, or students themselves have been given, you know, a, pen, a potential seat at the table at this. UNESCO level. It's just quite an amazing story to hear about. I, I want to go now less on the, the governance of student unions and the global architecture and more on what are some of the demands 
that students are going to try and make through, you know, or with UNESCO or, or on UNESCO. You've mentioned things like the environment and tuition fees and violence. So how do you see some of these interests and issues that students holistically or globally are, are, are identifying? How do you see them translate into the sustainable development goals, this notion of transformative education, and and just UNESCO generally? What does the Global Student Forum want in a sense? So what we've been trying to do since the, the outset of the initiative is to hold as many um, consultations with national unions um, and regional unions as possible um, concerning the ministerial declarations of the high-level political forum, but also G7 and G20 meetings, the World High Education Conference, and now again relating to the Transforming Education Summit. And uh, the demands from, from the students' constituency um, are, are very clear in relation to uh, pushing back um, the privatization of education, pushing for a clear commitment and increased funding for education as a as a public and, and freely accessible good. It, it also relates very much to the students' movement's aspiration to make uh, education more accessible for people regardless of disability, race, gender, sexual orientation and, 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 and religious beliefs. So first of all, widening education, but then also making education fit for purpose uh, to combat the crises that we are facing. And, and specifically, one thing we've been focusing on also in, in, in cooperation with the Teacher Union Education International is that we have an urgent need to implement quality climate education. There is no quality education at this point of the crisis without transmitting the necessary knowledge to learners to understand the urgency of the climate crisis and find solutions. Among other issues like uh, global active citizenship education, uh, we believe that uh, it's really, really important that we have a clear commitment from government that education is not only market-serving, but aims at, at, at raising you know, active citizens that are capable of, of participating in the democratic discourse and shaping um, future societies in, in, in a manner that benefits um, the greater good of the population. L last but not least, one of the things, obviously, that we are that we are lobbying for is ensuring student participation through democratic unions. I, I think that is uh, a tool to get into the rooms and push many of the other policy demands that are important to us relating to academic freedom and, and human rights, um, but also to uh, making sure that the digital transformation of education that we're currently seeing is happening in the interest of learners in respect to the data of students in respect to the fundamental principles of what education should look like. So as we head into the August sort of holiday for many people in Europe and in the Northern Hemisphere, and it gives us about another six weeks or so before Transforming Education Summit kicks off in New York City. What sort of message do you want to tell policymakers and other global actors that are going to be involved in that summit? What would your message be to them heading into the summit? So it is, it is evident that without a fundamental reimagination of education alongside exceptional and immediate investments in education, it will take us decades to make up for the learning losses um, caused by the pandemic. And we need to find ways to combat the trend that we are on track to, to fail on almost education-related goals set up by the 2030 Agenda. Our constituency, our students and learners are suffering from, from the direct fallout, um, but even more so now from the economic crisis that stems from the pandemic, which is putting further pressure on education 
additional budgets. And uh, as always, it's it's hitting the the most marginalized and and poorer countries the most because richer countries have means to to compensate. Um, but in relation to financing, we we urge the global north and high income countries to show solidarity now um, in these grim times and substantially increase their development spending instead of cutting it down. Also in line with the education and emergencies campaign and ECW replenishment um, is important to take action. While, while, while spending targets on education reflect the global consensus, most governments do not even meet the target of spending 20% of their budgets and 6% of their GDP on education, while these targets anyhow under, underestimate the need. So I think that uh, investing education um, means investing into our collective future, and now is the time to do it. Well, Sebastian Berger, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Best of luck in September at the TES. And please stay in touch and give us another update on how students are involved and the successes the students have at the global level in education policy making. Thanks again for joining. Thanks so much, Will. Sebastian Berger is the executive director of the Global Student Forum. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afrobotan, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shaktev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.